You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. My name is Tim Coe and today on the podcast I have a special guest, Dr. Ethan Tumbaran. Ethan, welcome. Thank you, Tim. Um, Ethan, tell us a bit more about yourself. Um, I suppose I should start at the beginning and just tell you firstly that I was born in South Africa during the apartheid years and I came to Australia as a migrant. I, I was very fortunate and was able to study medicine at University of New South Wales and then I did my general practice training in WA and um, I love general practice so much that uh, I actually went back and took up a job uh, at the practice where I did my basic term which was in Lockridge uh, which is in the eastern area of Perth and worked with a really diverse group of people uh, people sort of from the lower socio-economic group Aboriginal people, migrants and refugees and then at some point I started to get interested in refugee health and really the turning point for me was in, a, in, in around 2001 when you may remember um, the MV Tampa tried to sail to Australia and was blocked by the Australian government and the MV Tampa of course had picked up some asylum seekers in the open sea whose boat was sinking and managed to rescue about 433 people. And uh, that marked a a major shift in Australia's policy towards asylum seekers and those people were eventually uh, transferred onto uh, an Australian Navy frigate and transferred to Nauru and that was the beginning of what we call the Pacific Solution. So I was deeply moved by what I saw as, as quite unfair and unjust actions by quite a prosperous country and I felt that I had to do something to assist asylum seekers and refugees. So it was really from a social justice and human rights perspective that I got involved in this area of work and, and not from a sort of medical or research-based approach to it. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's such an interesting story. I remember those events so well. It's really probably without realising it's a polarising moment for the country, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's, it was really a time where a lot of people mobilised and got going. And I remember those days there were huge meetings and rallies in Perth and marches. Um, and it really is with some sadness that I, I look back on that now and realise that in 2017, really, a lot of things haven't changed. Mm, it's sad, isn't it? Mm. So you are part of the Refugee Health Network as well for the College of GPs. Tell us about the network. So uh, the college has uh, a faculty of special interests and within that, that, that group we have a refugee health uh, special interest group. Um, the, the network was, was set up, uh, the, the refugee uh, group was set up by Dr Christine Boyce from Tasmania and, I, and she was our inaugural chair and I, I'm the second chair of the network so it's still quite a young group. And it's really around supporting GPs from all parts of Australia provide quality care to refugees. So we have a number of, I guess, approaches. One, one is supporting clinical work, uh, supporting research on refugee health, uh, guiding the creation of uh, guidelines for screening in healthcare. But we also um, advocate on behalf of refugees around the area of health. Uh, so. You know, our members have first-hand experience of providing healthcare to refugees and asylum seekers, and so they know the, 
the issues and, and uh, I guess we're trying to advocate for better outcomes for that population. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I really should commend you on the work you've done. I, I mean, you do a lot of education here in WA and you're really highly regarded as a, as a speaker on refugee health. It is just an area that you can't find a textbook on refugee health. Um, yep. So, you know, it's hard to find really good quality education and teaching. Yeah. Um, it's hard to, hard to get the support, I guess, and you, you do need those colleagues to support you. Yeah, and I think one of the great things about the, uh, the special inquest group is just having that ability to sort of send an email or, or join in a teleconference and say, you know, and say, hey, what's, you know, what, what, what are people doing with this? Are you seeing a lot of strongoloides in your group and how are you managing it? Things like that. And that's really helpful. So I guess that brings me to my next question, because I, I know you've, you've, you, you've worked in migrant-specific clinics, so you see a different sort of perspective to perhaps a lot of our, our listeners. Um, a lot of our GPs out there would see small amounts of migrant health. I mean, you know I work in a, in a migrant community up in the north of Perth, and you know, it probably forms 2 to 5% of my work. Um, so my question is, aside from you know, the acute presenting problem that people come in with, what should we be looking out for when we see a patient with refugee background? What are the things that perhaps we could do better or we should be focused on? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Tim. And I, and I think if I was to think about it, I, I would think about it in three, in three broad areas, the social, the medical, and I guess the support and advocacy. So in terms of the social, I think it's really important, like all areas of primary care, is really understand the person that you're, you're dealing with and try and get to know them a little bit. So just finding out where they're from, for example, and what countries they've lived in. So they may have you know, fled Sudan many years ago and then spent quite a long time in a, in a refugee camp in East Africa. So it's important to, to know things like that. Finding out what language they speak or what languages they speak, because they may speak more than one language. And that can be helpful, for example, because someone may have a first language which is quite rare and there are no interpreters in Perth or, or Australia for that matter. But they may speak Arabic or Swahili as well, which, which is actually a lot easier to get an interpreter for. I also ask about um, uh, you know, previous education and employment because when we talk about refugees and asylum seekers, we're not talking about a homogenous group. Some people may be uh, farmers with very little education, but some people might be orthopaedic surgeons or barristers. So it's important to, to get a sense of where they're coming from, and that's also going to guide you in terms of how you speak to that person and counsel them on their, their health or illness. Um, another important thing I'd like to know is, is whether that person's literate in their first language. So um, that helps me in two ways. One, one is it'll help me find out uh, uh, to guide me on what information I may give them. There's a lot of translated literature out there and it's often helpful to give people printouts and so on. But also people who are literate in their first language actually find it easier to acquire a second language. So they're going to do much better in English language classes. Someone who's illiterate in their first language is actually going to really struggle to acquire a second language. The other important things around the social aspect is what supports that person has. Do they come to Australia alone or have they come with their partner and their child? Um, do they have extended family here? Are they supported by a community group or a religious organisation? And that can also, that, you know, that really helps in, 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 in times when they're extremely unwell or in crisis and you know you can go, you can go to for help. 
Around the medical stuff, I guess the first time you see someone, it's really important to get a comprehensive history. Um, go back to basics, get a full history. And I would really recommend doing a top-to-toe assessment. So people may not know that they have a perforated eardrum or a heart murmur or an enlarged spleen. And it's really important to document those when you first see someone and obviously investigate and manage as appropriate. Um, when we first see people uh, who've come recently from overseas, nutrition is a big issue, both under and overnutrition. So we often find children who are undernourished, iron deficiency, anemia, um, especially around the time of weaning. Vitamin D deficiency is quite common across the board in all the cultural groups. And at the other extreme we find is that once people get here, they put on weight quite quickly. There's a quick acculturation around diet. Um, and obviously we're thinking about things like diabetes and cardiovascular risks. When we talk about refugees, people are often uh, wondering about infectious diseases. And uh, in our clinic, probably the most common things we see are chronic hepatitis B infection and schistosomiasis in people from the tropics. We don't see much in the way of H HIV, which people might find surprising. But usually the people with HIV have already started treatment and are fairly stable. So it's just a matter of linking them with um, immunology clinics. The other concern a lot of people have is TB. But actually, refugees and migrants from uh, countries with high prevalence of TB don't often have active TB when they get here because they're so screened, they're so scrutinised before they get here. They don't get out. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But one thing we do need to think about is latent TB infection. So a lot of migrants and refugees will actually come with latent infection, which may activate years down the track. And often GPs don't think about it. So someone who may have come 20 or 40 years ago may actually reactivate their TB. So you need to think about TB in your differential diagnoses, especially so in this area of um, immunomodulating therapies. So someone may get put on to uh, one of these wonderful drugs for their rheumatoid or, or their bowel disease, but they actually have latent TB and it may actually reactivate their infection. So think about TB. And the other thing I want to say about TB is, um, don't forget that when we're talking about pulmonary TB, the gold standard for testing is still sputums. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of confusion around the role of quantiferon and IGRAs in this group. And um, so I just, just remind people about that because in someone with active TB, the IGRA can sometimes be negative and throw you off the track. So just remember to, 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 to check the sputums. Um, I think those are the main things I would, have talk, would suggest, but, but also just don't forget the other chronic things. Um, common things occur commonly. So refugees also get diabetes and heart disease and also need to be screened for cancer like the rest of the population and don't forget about those things when you're, when you're looking for all the weird and wonderful things. Yeah, great. So really it's about a comprehensive um, medical assessment and I guess not being afraid to ask the questions about people's backgrounds and you know, really go into detail about you know, what their level of education is and what their experience is coming into Australia. Yeah, and I think most people would, would appreciate being asked those questions and you're treating the person as an individual mm. and finding out who they are and where they come from. Yeah. 
Um, language is an issue that most GPs will, will come back and say, oh, it's just such a, a difficult thing with migrant health. Language is the big thing. Um, so what's your ab- approach to language barriers in consultations? Yeah, look, it, it, it is a challenge in, when you're running a busy practice. Um, but, I've, I mean, I guess the good news is that we do have access to TIS, the Telephone Interpreting Service, which is free for all GPs uh, seeing patients uh, who have a Medicare card if the consultation is a Medicare billable uh, consultation. And it does take a little bit of time, but, you know, it is quite a good service and you do need to allocate extra time for that consultation. Uh, it's good to have a speakerphone on your, on your desk and to be registered with TIS and have a client code so that it can be streamlined when you dial up. You can also pre-book the interpreter if you know that uh, someone's coming in at a particular time. Your receptionist can, can book it through uh, the TIS website prior to the, prior to the appointment. But look, language is really important. Uh, I can't stress the importance of using a professional interpreter, especially in complex consultations and especially where informed consent is required. Mm -hmm. It is really, you really, um, it's not good practice to use family or friends and especially uh, a poor practice to use the, the patient's child to interpret. We just don't know what's being interpreted. You can't be sure of what's being said. And medico-legally, you don't really have uh, a fallback position if you haven't used a professional interpreter and something goes wrong. Yeah. In terms of using the interpreter, just speak slowly and clearly and just give the, the interpreter time to interpret what's being said. And the other thing that's useful is something called teach-back, which I employ quite a, a bit, which is where I actually ask the patient to explain back to me what they've understood. So it's really important you do it in a sort of non-threatening way and, and, and don't make the, the patient feel that they're under the, the microscope. But I, I would say something like, just so that I've... Can I just check that I've done my job correctly? What have you understood by, by our discussion today? And, and sometimes you'll be quite surprised by the answer and you may need to go over the issue again. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good communications... Uh, I guess, tool, because, and it's not dissimilar to what we teach in good communication skills for a normal consultation. That's right, and, and especially important when, you, when, you, when you're sort of giving information about medications and drugs. So, um, you know, is, is the tablet one tablet three times a day or three tablets once a day? Things like that. Those things can get confused. So to, employing teach-back is really useful. Yeah. yeah. So use an interpreter wherever possible. Try and avoid family members wherever possible and try and check that the information's going through uh, as you intended. Uh, Let's talk about mental and emotional health of of refugees. I mean, it's such a big component of of looking after refugee patients. Um, How can we look after refugees' uh, patients' emotional health better? Yeah, look, I think I, I think I go back to what I said at the at the beginning is that try and get to know the person you're dealing with, try and get a sense of where they're coming from and what their issues are and what their priorities are. When I do a refugee health assessment, I uh, routinely ask about emotional health and we utilise the K10 questionnaire, which I think most GPs would be familiar with. We actually ran a study a couple of years ago looking at K10 in comparison with a post-traumatic stress disorder screener and the K10 actually fared fairly well, especially in terms of its negative predictive value. So if someone scored 10 on their K10, chances of them having something fairly significant was fairly low. 
But what I find really useful is just asking those questions just can open, open the door to talking about emotion. So I'd say to my patients, look, I'm just going to ask you these questions. I ask everyone these questions, and it's really to see if you need some extra help. Mm. And often that discussion will, will open up you know, other issues about um, their experiences um, uh, in the past and uh, the challenges they're experiencing at the moment. In my experience, severe post-traumatic stress disorder is actually quite rare amongst our patients. Most refugees that I've met do have some level of distress or grief, and it's usually around having to flee their country quite suddenly without, without warning, having to, to literally just grab their passports or their clothes and their children and you know, um, rush across a border into another country, leaving their family behind, sometimes not knowing what's happened to that family. Um, and then obviously the daily hardships of surviving, of making sure that they've got water and food, and then the prolonged wait in refugee camps. And then when they get here, there's a whole new challenge. There's getting used to Australia, getting used to the language. And I have to add, getting used to the Australian health system as well, because yeah. we have one of the most complicated health systems in the world. And they're often confused. Do they go to the GP? Do they go to the hospital? You know, what's Medicare? Do I need private health insurance? Things like that. So just helping, navigate, helping them navigate those things can be quite helpful. In terms of PTSD, I probably see a couple of patients each year who have severe PTSD. And you can almost spot them in the waiting room because they just look distressed and they're pacing or they're agitated. And most of those people, I would say, have experienced quite severe forms of trauma, usually torture. But I would never ask them about that. I would never question them about their torture because in some ways that can actually re-traumatise them. What I would usually do is take the approach of, well, tell me how, how your experience is affecting you now. How's it affecting your sleep, your appetite? How's it impacting on your relationships and the ability to go to school or work? And then we can talk about ways to address it. Often sleeplessness is the most pressing issue. And if you can get people some sleep, that gives them a little bit of respite to then start addressing the issue long term. For people who do have uh, trauma-related uh, mental illness, there's a fantastic service in Perth called Assets, and it's part of a, a program called the FAST program, and there are providers in all the states and territories of Australia, and it's free, it's free for the client, uh, and they really provide a good wraparound service. Fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's great. The other thing I want to say is that often, I guess, uh, sort of for want of a better term, soft counselling is helpful. So getting people involved in things like community groups, soccer clubs, mothers groups, that can often be a kind of a bridge, uh, a support mechanism to help them. Uh, just meeting other people from their culture, people who've been here for a bit longer, can just ease the way a bit for them. And there's also a number of those groups around the place, uh, you know, groups like Save the Children, Red Cross, Edmund Rice Centre run support groups like that. Um, let's talk about how GPs can improve their knowledge and skills in refugee health. What would you recommend if, if you've got, a, say, a GP out there who's seeing a lot of 
of refugee um, patients or wants to improve their skills? Yeah, there's, there's a number of really fantastic options available at the moment. Unfortunately, fortunately, a lot of them are available on the web. The real, the, I guess the, the gold standard now um, was, is a document that was put out by the Australian Society for Infectious Diseases last year, which had significant input from GPs. Uh, uh, including myself and other members from the college uh, special interest group. Um, and we put out uh, a, a booklet called The Recommendations for Comprehensive Post-Arrival Health Assessment for People from Refugee Backgrounds. And it really goes through in quite detail the, the tests that are recommended for refugees on arrival, um, the management plans, and it's all backed up by evidence. Um, and people can access that at www.acid.net.au. Um, it's available as a free PDF. And if you feel, uh, you know, really enthusiastic, you can order the hardcover version. The other great resource, which is currently being um, updated, is the Desktop Guide Caring for Refugees in General Practice, which was put together by the Victorian Refugee Health Network and that's refugeehealthnetwork.org.au. And that's also, as I said, it's being updated with input from GPs as well. And they're two really great resources. And of course, the other resource is joining the special interest group. So if anyone's interested, they can get in contact with the college and be put on our mailing list. Yeah, it's a free network and it's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. Um, last one's the tricky question. Um, Let's talk briefly about mandatory detention and the health effects of mandatory detention. It's such a topical um, subject. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, you work in refugee health. You see the people who've been effectively in incarcerated. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the health effects of mandatory detention? Um, look, I think mandatory detention is really a terrible... Um, uh, I, I can't I don't even know what the word program solution. It's not really a solution. It's you know we're effectively putting people who have never committed a crime, whole families, into what is effectively a prison-like situation, without having been to in front of a judge, without uh, an endpoint. So people are there uh, arbitrarily for indefinite periods of time. And I think there's such a large body of published medical literature now on the effects of mandatory detention, and there's actually no question that it is harmful for adults and children. We've got the, you know, the Forgotten Children Report of 2014 from the Human Rights Commission, and um, many other reports. And the college has consistently advocated for an end to mandatory detention. Um, the other point is, you know, mandatory de detention is really expensive. It costs us over $5 billion over the last four years in keeping these people offshore. It would be much cheaper to bring them to Australia uh, and have them in community detention here. It doesn't provide any long-term durable solutions. And it seems to me that the intent of this policy is actually to keep people in conditions where they extinct which extinguishes hope, which extinguishes hope that they'll ever be resettled uh, with the aim of, of making them go back to where they came from. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's really a, a dreadful thing. In my experience of, of working here, 
in, in refugee health is that refugees do thrive and recover in places of safety if they're given the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I, a couple of months ago I was catching the bus in Torhurk and I don't really take a lot of notice of who I sit next to, but I sat next to this young African man and he said, you know, hello doc, remember me? And when he came to Australia he didn't speak English, but now he speaks English, he has a job and he's really, you know, prospering in Perth. And I, and I just think that's, that's what this job is all about. But, you know, if we um, give people the opportunity, they do do well. And I think the most important things we can do for them are offer them hope meaning and connectedness and I think that's one of the things that detention deliberately doesn't offer. Thanks for that Ethan. I, I, I think that you actually raised something that really strikes me which is that the the story of refugees and migrants here in Australia more broadly is often framed in a very negative narrative um, and yet there are so many great successes out. The majority are successes, aren't they? You know, people who come with hope and then end up thriving. Yeah, that's right. And, and we just need to look to that first generation. You know, it's happened generation after generation. The, you know, the Italians and the Greeks post-World War II and then the Vietnamese. And, and now we're having the communities from Africa and, uh, you know, Burma and, and then... Iraq and Syria, the, the continuous waves that contribute to our nation. Yeah, it's it's easy to sort of pick up the paper and read the negative stories, but there's there's so many lovely stories out there of families who've survived and thrived and have so much to be proud of and, and are so much part of the Australian culture nowadays. Yeah, and I think being off being able to offer people, you know, a health check when they arrive, an ongoing healthcare is just one aspect of that. Yeah. So to our GPs out there, be a friendly face um, and help guide your patients through so that they, it's the opportunity for them to thrive. Yeah, I think being connected to a general practitioner who, who, who they trust and respect is part of that settlement and connection process. Listen, mm. that's a wonderful discussion. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure to. And that's the end of the episode of The Good GP. Mm.